Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Nick Vandeveer. Nick is the chief executive officer of ThoughtTrace, a document understanding company that utilizes artificial intelligence to provide customers with access to critical insights from documents in real time. As CIO, Nick has led ThoughtTrace's transformation into a market leader in their space. Prior to joining ThoughtTrace, Nick was a member of the American Armed Services and also worked at the U.S. Department of State. In this interview, we discuss the problems ThoughtTrace solves for its customers, how the company uses AI to create extraordinarily detailed models for natural language processing for highly specific use cases, and why some people miss the progress made in the realm of AI due to the future promise of artificial general intelligence. We discuss why we should embrace incrementalism with AI, why you do not need a degree from a top technology school to be effective with AI and data science tools, and the right and wrong ways to approach artificial intelligence when first starting out. Lastly, we discuss why companies should ask if they have the requisite data in-house to build a durable AI model, rather than if they have a large enough quantity of data, as well as Nick's path from army officer to CEO and a variety of other topics. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho, and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. Peter, you keep calling us an unusual enterprise software company. I think we should talk about that a bit. Yes, We have not borrowed a single dollar from a VC or a bank and ended up bootstrapping our way to multi-billion dollar SaaS business with over 60 million enterprise users. That itself is unusual for a tech company. But the principles that have kept us from accepting VC term sheets are simple. We believe all our employees should have good night's sleep each night, be it month-end, quarter-end, or year-end. To enable this principle, we have stayed private and have not dipped into public money. We don't believe in debt and discourage anyone from getting in one. A good night's sleep has its premium. Yes, we believe in good night's sleep and eating healthy foods. That's why we leave money on the table. It comes from our principle of eating healthy food. Just because there is food on the table, we don't believe it's healthy to eat it all. Therefore, any product we market, be it CRM, Sign, Helpdesk, and 100 others, these will be many multiples cheaper than our nearest competitor. And it comes from the principle of leaving money on the table. Find out more about our unusual enterprise company at Zoho.com. Thanks, Timothy. I also wanted to share a quick message from our sponsor, Sykes. Sykes is a leading provider of multi-channel demand generation and customer engagement services, helping Global 2000 companies enhance touch points at every stage of the customer journey. To share some perspectives, I'll briefly turn it over to Ian Barkin, the company's chief strategy and marketing officer. Customers don't want and don't deserve a new normal. They deserve and want a better normal. At Sykes, we know this because we spend over 3 billion minutes a year listening to and serving customers of the world's leading brands. And with that much listening, you can't help but know what delights, what infuriates, and what drives customer behaviors and decisions. So, what is a better normal? 
we believe it's the delivery of a truly intelligent customer experience. The call to action has never been clearer for CIOs, CTOs, and the broader C-suite. New is not enough, and the time for tinkering has passed. The winning combination of technology, talent, and customer insight is how to create intelligent customer experiences and a truly better normal. To read more about intelligent customer experiences, check out sykes.com forward slash ICX. Thanks, Ian. And now on to our interview. Nick Vandevere, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Peter. It's a pleasure. Well, uh, Nick, you are the Chief Executive Officer of ThoughtTrace. And for those who are listening who may be less familiar with the company, ThoughtTrace is a, it provides one unified platform to discover and understand what matters in your contracts and documents. Uh, talk a little bit about how you bring that to life and a bit more about the company itself, please. Yeah, certainly. So it, I, I, I would say we describe ourselves as a, a document understanding company uh, that utilizes AI to help people understand meaning and intent and even very complex document uh, business problems. So if you, and a lot of people like their minds immediately go to, to law firms and legal, you know, the ambiguous nature of contracts, which is, which is certainly a, a phenomenal use case for what we do. But um, I think at the end of the day, you, you have business users and they could be asset managers. They could be people working in private equity that are doing due diligence. They could be uh, folks that are looking at things like title around, around land valuations. Uh, people that work in manufacturing with large assemblies, uh, things like that. There are professionals out there, document understanding professionals that spend a tremendous amount of their time and a lot of value that they create is centered around their ability to understand a lot of information that is bound up in documents uh, that are that are dense and they're difficult to get through and they're domain specific. And that's we aim to solve those problems uh, and do it in a very, uh, very turnkey way for, for our customers. Well, having spent uh, time with people in law firms and asset managers and people in private equity, among some of the other examples you gave, uh, I must say some of those, and I, I forgive me for painting with a broad brushstroke, some of them are late adopters in terms of technology. And I'm curious how you've obviously successfully made the case to a lot of these people who have special training and expertise. In the, in the case of law firms, they have a special degree that you and I don't have uh, and uh, and made the case that this is something that's going to uh, be a boon to them and add to their experience and benefit their customers at the same time. How, how have you made that case in that, and uh, helped them with that evolution? That is, that is a great question. At the, at the risk of sounding heretical on a Technovations podcast, I think the key <laughs> with those uh, with those with those late adopting users is to make make the the thing that you do and the problem that you solve more about the job to be done and far less about technology. So we're an AI company, like we're a company of data scientists and AI professionals and subject matter experts and and developers and that sort of thing. So we don't get me wrong, like we very much geek out on technology and that is our thing. But at the end of the day, like we've got to connect those dots for not just for companies, but for the actual end users, the people that are in the software on a daily basis. We've got to connect the dots for them in a way that makes sense to them. And I, I, you know, I, I think the moniker of late adopter or lagger that oftentimes gets applied to these uh, these people that work in certain industries is because the work they do is so highly specific that generic tools don't work, right? And like we, we have to be cognizant of that uh, in terms of how we think about solutioning virtually anything for them. So it's you know, I, I think that I think the key thing, not just for us, but for any company or a, a CIO running running one of those companies, is to try to look at look back at the solution set and the technology stack and do it through the eyes of the end user, and then and then really craft the experience around that. And that's you know that's that's our focus, and I, I think it works. 
Well, let's geek out a little bit, if you don't mind. I'd love to hear, I'm sure you could go five hours uh, on how the technology works, how the artificial intelligence does what it does. But if you can give us a thumbnail version of that, I'd be interested to understand how it actually works. Yeah, so we deal, first of all, I would say like we are uh, we are not an AI for, for every problem set. Like we, we specifically focus on documents and largely on, on complex documents as well. Uh, but our approach is to, uh, is to build very robust algorithms where we are leveraging our internal subject matter expertise with the needs that the customer states within the, within the domains that we target, within the industries that we target to build, build very turnkey solutions. Uh, where the the mass and variety of data that we get to uh, w- within a given industry uh, allows us to create extraordinarily detailed uh, detailed models for natural language processing and you know for, for these highly specific use cases um, that add a that add a ton of value that can answer even even the most uh, fringy or edge case kind of questions uh, within a within a given domain. Thank you for that overview. Very interesting. I'd love to, Nick, talk to you a little bit more generally about artificial intelligence. Uh, It's one of those topics that even the most technically inclined uh, view it as the the, the biggest opportunities are in the future without sometimes recognizing the tremendous progress that has already been made. And, um, you know, artificial intelligence is one of those uh, topics that's been around for a long time. There have been ebbs and flows in its progress. It went through a period in in the so-called winter uh, where, where a lot of people lost faith in it. And now the confluence of a variety of factors have brought it back to the forefront. Um, talk a little bit about where you see uh, artificial intelligence as having evolved to, how far along we are in the game uh, towards, uh, towards, towards the progress made against that, and some of, the, some of the things that excite you most about that progress. Yeah, so, so it's kind of funny. I mean, you almost wonder if when Henry Ford came out with the Model T, did certain people say, well, until it can fly me, from point A to point B, it does all these other things. I'm just not interested in this amazing automobile that scoots me down the the you know the road much faster than, than my existing horse or or whatever the preferred mode of, mode of transportation is. I you know it, it, it is funny. Like there there certainly is some of that perception that that what we're working towards is very far out, uh, and a lot of people look at that in a way that I, I I think fails to realize the immense gains that have been happening for for some time now. In, uh, in very specific domains, but I, I think in a way is is practitioners of AI or we're sometimes our own worst enemy because you know in a, in a public facing way, folks in the AI community tend to focus on and you know what for instance AlphaGo Zero does is absolutely amazing, but it's this very like look at the amazing future that's in front of us and you know we're going to have a complete understanding of the human genome and all this and artificial general intelligence and AI that can set its own objectives. And that may happen one day, but it's it's likely quite a ways off. And what is happening today, in the narrow sense, and it could be what we do with documents, or it could be what uh, you know what certain companies are doing with things like drug discovery or radiology. I mean, there are numerous examples of this. AI is absolutely creating substantial value today in the narrow sense. And I, I think as as technologists and as practitioners of AI or, or, or technology in general. If we can, if we can sort of narrow the band of what our aspirations are, right, w- within within a window to say, okay, like as we think about the problem set that we're trying to solve over the next, you know, two to three to four to five years, that sort of thing, what can we realistically incrementally add value with today and put the focus there? I'd, I'd say again, put it back on the uh, how do we create value for the end user, and that that could be in the in the B two B sense, like we do, or you look at it in the B two C sense. 
using Google Pixel, but it could be an Apple iPhone or whatever. We, we go take pictures. My, my wife takes a picture with her phone. The image cleanup is absolutely amazing. It is using machine learning algorithms. She gives no thought to it at all. So I think in the day-to-day -day consumer experience and in, 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 in some cases in the enterprise experience, immense value is being created, but it's in, in many ways lost because the focus is so much on where people think we may go from an artificial general intelligence standpoint. And that's all well and good. I mean, that, that sort of thing potentially excites me also, but we should really embrace incrementalism, right? Like not just in AI, but in anything, you know, getting, getting X percent better per year, even if you're not doubling is great. And it really adds up over time. And that, that's something I, I, I think it's a story that should be told more. Uh, I wanted to also ask you, so I know a lot of companies, uh, enterprises find the topic relatively intimidating, especially as they think about how do they develop their own artificial intelligence people, skills, uh, processes, technology, certainly implementing tools like the one you have. Um, you know, the, the the people who are involved in artificial intelligence, those that have skills associated with it are oftentimes the most in demand and the most expensive to find and, and oftentimes go to kind of the usual suspect digital native organizations. I wonder what advice you'd have for as somebody immersed in this field, as well as somebody who spends a lot of time with what I might refer to as digital immigrant organizations, those born before the digital age, to get up to speed on this to more fully realize the value from artificial intelligence. Yeah, no, it, it's. I, I think it's for AI companies, and certainly for uh, for com companies that are not AI companies that are trying to do things with AI. This is like the 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 labor challenge, the race for talent is one of the hardest things. And I think there's I think there's a strong bias out there that people think I've got to have somebody that you know went to Stanford or, or Carnegie Mellon or MIT or something like that in order to get these things done. And I, I like objectively, I think that's just not true. Like it, we, we've done some really cool things. Our company is an example, but I think it's applicable broadly. We've done some really, really cool things in the AI space with text and, and we are not staffed necessarily with, with people that went to those schools, that sort of thing. Uh, one of our, one of our senior uh, data scientists um, was a petroleum engineering undergrad, right? He, he didn't come from an AI background and we've got a variety of people. We had a guy that worked with us for a while and he was an English teacher by background and, and then got a master's degree in, in data science after that. Did absolutely amazing work. So I, I think as you, as you look out among both the creative and the technical community, there are people from a wide variety of different backgrounds that if they understood what the possibilities are in terms of what they can do with AI, would raise their hand and say, okay, this makes sense to me. I, I want to I step in and acquire the requisite technical skills to make it happen. Um, it, and it, it works. I mean, it absolutely works. So I, I, I would not let the barrier to say, I've got to go got to go hire somebody with a PhD from this school or that school, or I'm competing with Facebook or Google and necessarily get in the way of anybody um, going and finding, finding some talent, seeing, seeing what they can do uh, with machine learning and data science tools. I think it's much more democratic and approachable than most people think is the net of it. That's great. No, good, good overview. Um, you've also talked about, uh, and perhaps most relevant for some of the people who might be listening, who are on the lower rungs of the maturity uh, relative to these topics, about the the um, the notion of starting small, developing a pilot, or uh, you're building some momentum through some some smaller use cases. Talk a bit about what you've seen work well and what recommendations you have from that perspective, please. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I I would say this is true of technology projects in general, but certain, like especially true if you're if you're doing anything with AI. Um, I, I I think I think it is a mistake to say like we're going to go we're going to truly go boil the ocean 
take in all the data and then figure out what we're going to what we're going to do next. Like oftentimes companies get in this mindset to say, hey, I, I want to do something with AI. So where do I have a lot of data? In? I'll, I'll go do something AI, AI-ish over there. I think that's a mistake. Like you're, you're going to spend a lot of money looking for value. And, uh, and there's probably a pretty low chance that, that you're going to find it. Conversely, if you can, if you can more narrowly say, okay, here within, within this given business process or function, we see an opportunity to do some things with AI that may speed up what we do today, or even better, may create some new information that we otherwise would not have access to. Go do that narrow thing first. And number one, I, I think that that will create re- real value for you. You're much likely to have a more successful project. Number two, you're going to create a culture that's bought into the idea that they can they can actually do things with with AI. And number three, you're going to familiarize yourself and your your technical teams with what the capabilities really are. So, I mean, it's really you know it's the old crawl, walk, run thing. It's it's true in a lot of things, but I think it's especially true in in the application of machine learning. Makes sense. Makes sense. And yours is one of perhaps a variety of solutions an organization might choose. I don't mean your competitive set. I mean, as as people bring artificial intelligence tool sets into their, uh, inside their, their organizations, they need to think about how to, you know, where one begins, where one ends. Think about that ecosystem that they're curating. And I wonder, you know, how do you think about that as one of the players in an ecosystem? As you go in, it's not to say that you necessarily have, have, uh, you know, major touch points with all the systems that they have, but th- surely there are probably some touch points between the things you're, you're delivering and internal systems that they're keeping. How do you think about and how do you advise the companies that you work with on the use of thought trace as part of that broader ecosystem? Yeah, so, so I would I, I, I would I would say more broadly, and it's a slightly different different answer to your question, but I, I think if I were in the shoes of a CIO, it, it, if I looked at us or in anybody else that's uh, pitching an AI solution out there, I'm probably going to go through sort of my build versus buy assessment. And the the first question I would ask myself is, do I have the requisite data in-house to actually build a durable AI model? And what I did not just say there was, do I have a bunch of data that I could go try? Like a lot of companies have a ton of data, but do I have the variety that would make this thing be durable to where it, 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 I don't overfit or overbias the models? And I can create something that's ultimately going to be durable going forward that people can actually trust the results of. So I, I think that's that's question number one that you have to assess. And there are a lot of build use cases internally uh, for corporations where that is 100% the right thing to do. I think there are other use cases, and this is where our focus tends to be, where, where having a, a vendor that can create models that are, that are durable because that vendor... Uh, has exposure to a much, much greater variety of data is going to yield much, much better results at a substantially lower cost. Uh, and then from there, like after, your, after you assess your project sort of in that light, I, I think the question, just like with any technology becomes, how do I take the data that this solution is creating, whether that was, was a build or buy decision, how do I take the data that this solution is creating and integrate it into other systems and processes in such a way that it's a substantial force multiplier. And I, I think, you know, you don't solve for that on day one, but it's got to be a consideration uh, in the process. And it's certainly something to to aspire to once you once you realize that initial success with the with the project itself. That's interesting, Nick. Yeah. You know, if, if somebody looked at your resume and, and did not look beyond 2008, they wouldn't uh, necessarily have seen the, the the future you've created for yourself. You have a very interesting pathway to the CEO position. You spent time as a, 
a U.S. Army officer uh, in Iraq. You were also in Iraq with the the uh, U.S. D- uh, State Department as well uh, for a time before getting uh, into the business realm and eventually uh, seven and a half years ago, roughly uh, uh, coming to, to Thought Trace. Um, talk a bit about that journey and how you've leveraged some of the non-traditional aspects of your background uh, now as a business leader. Yeah, so, so it's a it's a funny thing. I, I uh, I'm a bit of an avid reader, and I, I I read a book several months ago. In fact, I read it twice called Range uh, by a guy named David Epstein. And the theme of the book is it's how generalist Trump in a specialized world, that sort of thing. But I I, I will tell you, I went through uh, you know since I took over as CEO in 2014. I, I felt like when people would ask me about my background, that I was rationalizing why it isn't odd that I was in the, in the CEO seat. And it, it, it's actually a lot more common, I think, than people realize that you have folks that come from this kind of wide variety of different experiences and then pluck various things from each one and incorporate that into, into what they're doing today or what, what, they, what they do in that leadership position. So for me, it was, you know, in, in my 20s, the, uh, the career path there in the Army and then, and then later on overseas again uh, with, the, with the State Department. It, it's what made sense for me at that time. I learned a tremendous amount from it. Uh, but really, the pivot was to say, hey, I'd like to give the, the free enterprise system a try here and do some creative things and some fun things. And that ultimately, uh, ultimately led me here to Thought Trace. Uh, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a great experience and a great ride. But I, I think one of the most important lessons out of that um, for somebody that's maybe a little bit earlier in their career is, you know, don't don't let what the you know what the past five years has been like necessarily determine what you're going to go do next. Like there's there, there is a wide range of opportunities and options out there, and I think as as people we've got to be constantly asking ourselves the question like is is this is this the thing I want to be doing? Or what's the thing that I want to be doing next? And you got to optimize for that, right? And the, that variety of experiences is really just going to inform um, a better path forward, I, I think, for uh, for anyone that's got an open mind about how they approach approach career development. Yeah. To talk a little bit about um, the like the year ahead, which of course for all of us has a lot of uncertainty. Uh, so we, we don't know yet to when the pandemic is going to conclude. We don't know how quickly the uh, the economy will will come back and so forth. Talk a bit about as a leader during these trying and very uncertain and in fact in our lifetimes unprecedented times, how you're leading and some of the conclusions you're drawing as you look to the future. Yeah. So, so I, I, I would say through the pandemic, I mean, the, the message with our, our company and our management team, and we've got a board that is very supportive of this is like, hey, you're going to, you know, there are going to be some challenging times. These are probably exceptionally challenging times with the uh, with COVID and the pandemic, not just in a business sense, but I think there's a lot of a lot of uncertainty for people individually. I mean, it's, a, you know, I don't think any anybody listening to this podcast was around in 1918, or if they were, they, they probably don't remember it. So uh, this is a new thing for all of us, and I, I you know, I, I think uh, as a leader, uh, empathy is one of those traits that you really uh, have to focus on. And uh, so, I think that's something we've got to understand with our with our employees and our teammates. Is it, 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 it's it's an interesting time, and like we work through it together, uh, but we keep our eye on the mission, right? And that's building that's building the best product. It's serving our customer in the best ways that we possibly can. You keep focused on that, and I think gives it gives people clarity around the mission statement of the company. Uh, and allows people to uh, uh, to work through it, work through it together. But ultimately, you know, I I I think uh, uh, for us as a company, and I think for a lot of folks out there, like this will be a learning experience. We'll come out stronger on the other side. We'll build a more, you know, for us, I would say we will build a more resilient company because of it. 
That's great. Well, Nick Vandeveer, thank you so much for joining me today, sharing some perspectives from your your perch as the chief executive officer of Thought Trace, a bit more about your own background, what you see for the future. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, Peter, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Monday when my guests will be Sheila Jordan, the chief digital officer and chief technology officer of Honeywell.